0: Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human centered design. So let's get started on today's Human Odyssey.
1: And welcome to another episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm Brittany Walton. I'm our strategic operations lead and podcast moderator for today's episode. And with me, I have Jennifer Fogarty here. She's SoFix Director of Applied Health and Performance. Um, our topic today is telemedicine and aerospace. Um, this episode is part two of our telemedicine topic. In episode five, we discussed telemedicine in general. Um, and some of our own experiences with telemedicine and some of the challenges in future applications for telemedicine. Um, So if you haven't listened to that episode, episode five, and you want to hear more on the non-aerospace application of telemedicine, um, feel free to go listen to that episode as well. Okay, so I want to start off introducing um, Jennifer and give a little bit of of her background um, for listeners that may not know Um, Jen actually has an abundance of experience in aerospace. Um, She was NASA's chief scientist for the Human Research Program um, for many years, so she brings a wealth of experience to this particular topic when we talk about the need for telemedicine in aerospace and the challenges that telemedicine faces just due to the nature of that um, environment of use. Um, So what is telemedicine in space and and what does that mean? Um, So for those that may not be aware, Um, We do have humans living and working um, in space on the International Space Station, and that's about 250 miles above Earth. So just like us, those astronauts sometimes require remote access to medical care um, from medical experts here, here on Earth. So telemedicine allows astronauts to have that remote access to medical professionals that can either walk them through a procedure or conduct a private medical conference um, with video and audio to help diagnose or treat them um, in that remote setting. So there's a variety of factors that need to be understood in order to appropriately provide medical care for humans in that remote microgravity setting, Um, you know, we have to understand what the mission profile is. We have to understand what the baseline health is for the individuals going on the mission. Um, So Jen, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the challenges and the opportunities um, of telemedicine in the aerospace environment. Um, So just to give a specific example, you know, humans actually lose some bone and muscle mass um, due to the microgravity environment that they're in. So there are certain um, conditions that are unique um, to aerospace that we have to consider when talking about telemedicine and the associated hardware and operations um, needed to occur to provide medical care in space. Um, so, Jen, if you can give us a little bit of background on, on telemedicine and and some of your experiences um, in the past and what are some of the challenges that have to be overcome when we talk about telemedicine in, in the aerospace environment.
0: Sure. Yeah, this has always been, you know, you think historically, so even pre-Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, people trying to characterize what was going to happen to the human body when we took it into these extreme environments and exposed them to forces or lack of forces in the case of microgravity. Um, there was all kinds of conjecture and speculation about what a human body could and could not do, even to the fundamental, you know, function of swallowing was a question in microgravity, thinking about if you're upside, you know, the concept of your body thinking it's upside down. It didn't have gravity to tell you where up and down, where, you know, how are your tissues going to work? So the remote monitoring is where telemedicine really started, which is instrumenting people with uh, electrodes, um, some pretty primitive stuff that was available back in the fifties and sixties to mostly detect things like heart rate um, ECG, you know, electrocardiogram um, looking at how the heart beats the electrical activity of it and say, was it regular respiratory rate? Um, And that has evolved over time. Uh, You know, as people have lived in space longer, a lot of those missions were very short, uh, especially Mercury Gemini. Um, They're more like suborbital or or orbital for several hours or or a few days, but, um, you know, they needed to get those people back. And of course, there was a lot of robust testing before and after flight. So when we started putting people into space for longer periods of time, now it really became an issue of telemedicine as opposed to just monitoring. Now you have the intent of someone uh, spending a significant portion of, of their year. <laughs> um, and I think you said that was something that was really important, which is there's your baseline health. How, how is your body Going to manifest things over time, just because you're you, you know, and the world at large is learning more about that with molecular medicine, genomics. Um, But then we add a lot of environmental factors that could change the course of your health. Um, And you definitely go through a transition when you go into spaceflight, particularly with the lack of gravity. Um, And of course, people are concerned about other things like space radiation. There's also closed environment. We're not able to keep the atmosphere quite exactly how we have it here on Earth. So you know, how your metabolism is, is functioning. So the idea of being able to monitor, diagnose, and treat someone from 250 miles away, and it's, it's even a little more complicated than that because we actually do that on earth regularly because people have access to resources. So the other part that drives a very sophisticated and um, kind of on point, medical architecture is the idea that they only, these people only have the resources you gave them. So you do a lot of prediction of, you know, how, how, how and when if a condition were to occur, and if we were able to diagnose it correctly, do we have the right things to treat you? So I always talk about that as a closed loop system. You had to think through the whole process. The telemedicine part, you know, when you think about it's kind of conceptualizing it here on earth is like, you know, us being on Zencaster, doing a podcast, looking at each other, we could be several miles to hundreds hundred to thousands of miles apart. And, you know, it's a pretty seamless interaction. However, typically in the medical domain, you put hands on a patient, you use a stethoscope and you press it against their chest. You use, you know, an otoscope and look in their ear or their eye, down their throat. and and you're really touching and looking at the color of tissue, the texture of tissue, you're communicating and looking at the responses a person gives you. Telemedicine um, allows many of those features in terms of looking, but not the touching. Now you have to have someone be able to articulate more deeply like how they are feeling or you need more technology to assess them, you know, the way you would normally in an office. So even the concept of listening to someone's heart uh, can now be done remotely using either a a dedicated tool, it's called auscultation when you listen to someone's heart using a stethoscope. But what's even more interesting is there are some small adapters that go on things like smartphones um, that can pick up a heartbeat with enough fidelity um, and and move that signal across in a telemedicine sense so that a doctor actually could listen to your heartbeat remotely. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, all those tools help us provide healthcare, which say... And I think, you know, when you mentioned we have periodic medical evaluations for that mere purpose of kind of preventive medicine, you know, how are you feeling? What's going on? Can we look at all your major systems of your body and say, do you look good? And um, I think for Space Flight, it, it is always this tension of how much do we need to do those things versus provide other resources? And that could be you know, other equipment for say solar array panels. It's it's not like it's all about the human. So we are constantly, um, there's a significant forcing function to be as lean and as light um, and really austere as possible, but still getting the job done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, challenging when you don't know exactly, you know, what's going to come up, like what issues, um, you know, might present themselves, especially you know, thinking forward to you know Artemis missions and even more remote, extreme environments where you know you can't have a um, launch vehicle there with additional supplies in, in the matter of you know days. Um, and so you know, how do you how do you understand and plan for you know the minimum um, you know viable product um, to take with you? You know, that's you know definitely you have to weigh priorities and. like we said, understand baseline care and, you know, hopefully at some point it'll be more, um, you know, we'll be more sustained on, on those extreme environments um, and, you know, planetary bodies, but, you know, starting off, it's going to be what you brought with you. So,
0: yeah, and that is another paradigm shift. Um, So in the concept of telemedicine, and these are just terms that have some implied, (laughs) <laughs> you know, definitions. It doesn't mean it's still not the right term, but it, it's a little, it's a shift in terms of the application of how you do telemedicine. So in the concept of low Earth orbit, uh, even for, you know, government assets like the International Space Station or the future of commercial spaceflight, you have exactly what you described. You you have to still, you know, send a lot of things, um, you know, build this architecture, figure out what you're gonna put on the vehicle or in the habitat, information can be moving between the the asset that's in low earth orbit and the ground and specialist. And you you do have a chance to resupply. You have a chance to bring people back pretty quickly. It's a relative measure, but pretty quickly um, it is it is doable. But when you start to move outside of low earth orbit, even to lunar orbit, lunar planetary, no less a Mars exploration class mission, you're going to need to move from how we do telemedicine, even in that frame, to more like autonomous capability and more automated systems. And all of it, even in low earth orbit, it, it really, that, that prognostic capability of saying what is likely to happen and or be catastrophic enough that we have to build a mitigation, a medical mitigation strategy for it, means it should be data driven. You know we shouldn't be guessing or talking about how we feel about things or you know it, it we have to do the research we have to gather the data and we have to be a little creative um we can't always do it in the in the environment we're going to we haven't been there yet so we rely on either low earth orbit or even earth-based you know experiences to talk probabilities um and and things more tangible that influence the probability these contributing factors it, like as if we knew how genetics could affect a reaction to space flight in the environmental stress We don't quite have that mapping yet. And it is very complex. We, it may never be actually clear. What you would look for is more of a signal like a biomarker that tells you when someone might be going down a path. But again, like you, you have to close the loop in that. And it becomes more and more critical to close the loop um, in the, the lunar uh, whether it be the the lunar sorties or the, the lunar sustained or the Artemis, because to, to your point, your resources can't be resupplied as easily. You can't get people home as easily. The paradigm has completely shifted. So to give people a sense of order of magnitude, um, deorbiting a sick person, ill or injured person from the International Space Station, can happen within a 24-hour period. The actual function of deorbiting and coming back, which we see during landings, you know, that are captured by the media, um, you know, even the NASA channels show you from the time that, you know, they undock and then they, you know, enter the atmosphere and you see them, it's on the order of hours. But in terms of, you know, decisions about exactly how carefully you have to get people in the crew in the vehicle and make sure everyone's suited and packed. It's, it's really like a 24-hour process at a minimum to figure out how you can safely land people. Well, in the concept of lunar, that could be anywhere from 7 to 14 days, depending on where you are. It's not a quick event. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more challenging, which means you still have to have a way to sustain the ill or injured person um so the idea really we talk about like the occupational health model which is engineer out the exposure or the problem make it as safe as possible for the human so you're not inducing harm in your baseline health if you may have changes cuz we're keeping you on a mission long enough that your health could change over time you know short missions are a blessing sometimes because we can screen people and kind of rule out a lot of medical conditions that could you know appear in 3 to 5 days or 10 days or even 2 weeks that was a shuttle paradigm um, so you can take people who are considered more risky, you know, that have a background of maybe some health issues, and you could be relatively certain, very close to launch that you've ruled out the bad thing from happening. It's never zero, but you can get the probabilities down where everyone's comfortable that it's it's risk appropriate. But when you start going months and years, that's when you really lose control, you know, from a knowledge standpoint, you no longer understand you're how this person may change over time and now you've got to build in monitoring capability but also responsive capability that if if someone's health were to take a turn could you mitigate it um so i think that paradigm shift from what we know and kind of conceive as telemedicine today in low earth orbit is still more challenging in spaceflight than it is on earth and in many cases not in all Uh, but when you move to lunar and and deeper space um, you have to shift to a medical architecture that's really about autonomy and automation. Um, right. There's also issues with, you know, who will be flying and what will they be capable of, you know, in terms of knowing how to provide medical treatment when they are autonomous.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before we get to that um, next section, I just want to, you know, take a minute and talk about, you know, humans in space and telemedicine really isn't a new thing. You know, we've had humans in in space for you know decades now um and so we've learned a lot and i, I, I would say the other part of you know telemedicine and not just treating and diagnosing um, people real time um, but also you know kind of closing the loop and feeding you know the research um, aspect to understand what technologies we need to fill the gaps you know that might be there um, so your experience you know being the nasa Human research program, chief scientists. You know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of data come through that help to inform industry as well um, about you know what's needed, what technology gaps do we have. So, what's kind of like the number one you would say, um, I guess, benefit that we've learned through these you know past couple decades, or just something that comes to mind that you know has has fed back through industry, and we've kind of seen technology advance um, to be able to to treat the need.
0: Yeah. So the the tool that that is become most useful space flight. it has the most agility. It's the lightest, the leanest, and it's, it can both be a diagnostic tool as well as a therapeutic tool is ultrasound. It, it really has, um, you know, very early on, I'd say in the international space station program, but it, it actually was at the, toward the tail end of shuttle as well. Um, a very functional tool to do imaging. Now it it has its limitations. It can't like get through your skull. Like that's where we've struggled with like imaging the brain, but we've, we've learned a lot and we have pushed the limits on how ultrasound was used, which actually was a very much an earth-based benefit, whether it be in the orthopedic arena, (laughs) looking at, you know, looking at joints and understanding, well, what does a normal joint um with cartilage look like? How does it present itself in an ultrasound scan, which which is a learned thing? You say essentially you build these huge catalogs of knowledge and have to screen people and understand, you know, you, you do it against a gold standard, which might be CT or MRI. We're not going to have commuted tomography, which is a an, an X-ray-based imaging modality that a lot of people get if they come in with an injury or an MRI magnetic magnetic resonance imaging. You know, those are just not practical to put in space. Now, I would say some people are experimenting with MRI, and we have talked about x-ray, but, but they've never approached the capability and application that we've seen of ultrasound. But it has taken a lot of effort and research over the years to build the knowledge base to support the use of ultrasound so that you can actually interpret what you're seeing and understanding the range of normal and when it's representing an injury or a pathology, um, whether it be in a joint. The other area that we really stressed was kidneys because we have a risk, um, because you talked about early on in the introduction, when you have disuse atrophy, when astronauts – and th- there's a little misconception that the level at which their body is transitioning is is more like pathologies. And, and I tend to push back on that a little bit because – it's really disuse atrophy. You stop using, you stop loading bones. You stop having to carry even your own body weight. So your body's incredibly energy efficient. So it does things like reduces muscle mass. Yes, it's muscle atrophy, but it's not to the degree to which someone can't grow back muscle. Like if you restimulate their mm-hmm. muscles or they, they come back, they can recover their bodies. On a cellular level, they're very, we're very robust. But to your point, you still need someone very functional during the mission and the mission may have different needs at different times, especially if you're going from microgravity to a planetary surface. So ultrasound now has been used to look at the thickness of the fibers, you know, within a certain body, a a muscle, like the body of the muscle, the thickness of the muscle. You can do estimates of muscle volume. Um, They are looking at ultrasound to do bone density, which is, is extremely useful to NASA, but it's also useful to people on Earth because... You know, the gold standard is, is another x-ray based technology. It's called the DEXA, um, is the acronym for it. And not everybody can get to a DEXA, not DEXAs are another big machine you have to lay in and have it be scanned. And you're talking ultrasounds now are literally the size of a smartphone. Um, and so these types of tools and our spaceflight need to be agile, uh, again, light, lean, um, it is just really bringing tools that are so deployable no matter where you are. They fit in a backpack and they're part of a suite of tools. So I think I've been most impressed with ultrasound. I'll go back to the kidney for a second. So back to the bone density loss. When you are losing bone density, the calcium has to go somewhere and your body processes it out and you're going to urinate it out, which means it goes to your kidneys. And I think people, most people are familiar with someone who might've had a kidney stone, which most likely is calcium is a significant contributor. So crew members were, were concerned that they're very at risk because they're processing all this calcium out and trying to keep them properly mm-hmm. hydrated. So ultrasound now, um, cannot, can can, can detect, can detect like the earliest s- symptom of a stone before mm-hmm. the person is hurting. Um, and you can do some things like change your urinary, um, acidity, which can stop the crystal growth. And so we can use different countermeasures and do more prevention or early intervention. Um, and now university of Washington has been working on a protocol where you can actually use ultrasound to, to bust up a kidney stone. Typically that a technique called lithotripsy was used and that the lithotripsy was not a practical application in space, but ultrasound using high frequency, uh, can also be therapeutic. So, ultrasound has been very exciting, and I think the, the spin back to Earth has really been um, an incredible tool for places like emergency rooms, remote medicine, and rural medicine.
1: Right, right. That's really awesome to kind of see how um, you know the spaceflight environment brings technology you know back to Earth, and you know we improve on things as as we go forward um, in spaceflight. Um, so, switching gears a little bit. Um, you know, let's talk about the, the wider population of, of commercial flyers that we're gonna see in this, this new era of commercial, commercial aerospace, um, you know, especially as you were talking about, you know, having to be more autonomous just due to the um, more remote nature of, of those destinations. Um, and when we talk about the commercial um, industry and, you know, the whole new um, fleet of, of flyers that, you know, are, are slated um, to, to go on some of these missions, um, you know, how do we, and this is kind of where, you know, human-centered design comes into play, how do we ensure that um, the procedures, the processes, the hardware um, is usable and, and functional for um, people that aren't as experienced, don't have as much training, you know, don't go through years of uh, of training um, before these missions and make sure that, you know, they are able to, to use what they have um, to have successful outcomes and successful missions.
0: Yeah, it's, that's a really, um, you know, like a loaded issue, not in a bad way. You know, it has a lot of texture to it because with commercial, you have a lot of people flying who aren't your traditional astronauts the way, you know, a lot of people would think of them. Now, it is true in the case of NASA astronauts and other government, you know, countries who send astronauts, there, there is a rigorous selection process. And that has a lot to do with these people being thought of as like a long-term career goal. Um, and they are also employees uh, and there, there's lots of hazardous exposures in this. So there, there's an entire paradigm built around kind of picking um, people who are already very healthy, keeping them very healthy, keeping them very highly trained. So commercial space like, being very different than that in terms of you're sending customers who are paying customers. Now, I will say and I, to just back this up a little bit was medicine, um, particularly space medicine, always considered itself to be enabling. It wasn't about finding flaws in people and saying, Oh, you can't go. It was, we're all vulnerable. We all have flaws, no doubt about it, you know, physiologically, medically, but the idea of knowledge could be power that you knew what to do about it. So there's a lot of work done on the astronaut core to keep them as healthy as possible. Clearly they make good decisions, well-educated, they live healthy lifestyles, but when it comes to screening and intervention, That is done to really optimize them so they have the lowest risk posture possible. Going back to if you're going to live six months, one year in space on an international space station and we don't have a lot of medical equipment, we're trying to buy down as much risk as possible. But in commercial space, you also want to be enabling... but. even to the extreme of sending someone who does have pre-existing health conditions. These aren't people who, you know, these are one-paying customers and they want to enjoy their experience in, in a lot of different ways. They kind of get to determine like how much they want to work versus be a a tourist and 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 you know, look at look at earth and whatever it is they're going to do. But they may represent medical risks that would be something like, well, in a traditional astronaut sense, th- that isn't the paradigm, but They're also not going there to work and be up there for months at a time, at least initially. Mm -hmm. But we also, I think, at times have been overly conservative as we've done space medicine because we haven't, we, you know, and, and this has always been a bit of a conundrum. You know, luck favors the prepared in that we're not just lucky that we haven't had a medical event; it's designed out to a large extent. We always don't know the the molecular level of why bad things didn't happen. We don't have a crystal ball yet, but. We we definitely have the data that says we're not having medical conditions appear on orbit the way people predicted they might happen. So that's information, too. You kind of have to decompose it. You want to know why. But maybe, maybe we didn't have to be that conservative in the sense of like government advancement. You're like, well, they're not ready to lighten up. You know, and it makes sense, you know, on our our standards and requirements for human health. But on the commercial side, you've got some latitude to start to understand that space of, are these things as hazardous? Like, do they contribute to the probability of a bad outcome as we thought they would? We can actually, and from my experience now, spaceflight, commercial astronauts have very much been willing to participate in human research so they can be characterized. So we really understand their baseline. We watch them you know, monitor them as closely as possible with a lot of the same tools we do with astronauts so we have comparable data sets and say, are the changes they're going through, their adaptation, is that actually putting them on a road to a medical outcome or not? Because both they, the individual would like to know that the, the commercial provider who's taking them would like to know that, I'm sure. And we could prepare better to enable them to still have a very successful experience, even though they have a health condition. Um so I think it's, it's opening up the door for us to be able to, to fly more and different people and, and understand actually some ranges of normal we've never characterized. Going back to the diversity of population will be, has been much different than what the traditional astronaut corps is. Even though that diversity is changing, it changes slowly. Commercial space started out different. Um, so the other element you asked about was the hardware and the human-centered design. And I think that's where... Um, a lot can be brought to bear, especially thinking about the future of being autonomous, where you can't put it on the human to be an expert user. That for most stuff, you're going to be sending even the future NASA crews where their jobs are dedicated to other things than being medical providers. Um, right. So I, that's a, a similarity with with commercial space that it, there's mutual mutual benefit there to design things more along the lines of people. Most people are at least familiar with the concept of an external defibrillator, an automated external defibrillator an AED. Um, that is the type of tool that is in malls. It's in uh, sporting event arenas, places where you have large populations and you might have people with cardiac, you know, issues going on. And they, and the probability, you know, like it, it's just a time and event issue, but you put If the person goes down, the device has pads that are put on the person that sense and respond to the electrical activity of their heart. um, And people just have to back out of the way. It's essentially the device is doing all of the work and it is very safe both for the patient in terms of it would not admit a shock if that were not appropriate. And it doesn't ask the person to get everything just right. There's very um, kind of primitive directions, not different than what you might get with your iPhone when it says, hello. I'm on, you know, just kind of pictographic yeah. things that say, put the pads on the chest in this alignment and turn the green button and step back. And the the device actually articulates things to let you know what's going on. So there's some feedback that you know it's actually doing the job it's intended. So I think most designs for commercial space should use that as inspiration. That That's the type of philosophy you would want when you have especially a medical tool that you know given best intentions and someone's thoughts about what might be going on they need validation and that should right. be intra device capability
1: right right informing the the you know participant or the the patient what's actually happening um you know is definitely important in a way that they can understand it um so i think you know the the future of of commercial spaceflight and um you know government astronauts is is really exciting and i think um you know, there's a lot of technology being developed and a lot of, you know, foundational activities that are, that are occurring that, you know, hopefully we get right. And we, we make sure that we understand the the population that's going to be in these environments using this hardware and uh, make it appropriate um, for that.
0: Yeah. I um, appreciate that. Just- and I think there's an opportunity with commercial to have a lot of throughput where you can, can test, uh, test and retest, um, because a lot of it can be sent up you have exact you you have what you need to support a mission but then you've got some latitude to do some we call them, you know technology demonstrations and just start to understand you know particularly in the paradigm of of microgravity what is going to work and how is still an it has an art element to it um but yeah i think commercial space is opening up that that throughput aspect and also the diversity aspect
1: right right Well, thank you so much, Jen. I think this has been a really, really good conversation and appreciate the insight and expertise that you bring.
0: (laughs) I I always enjoy talking about medicine in space, and I think um, sometimes it's a little hard to understand exactly why it matters back to Earth and uh, how it can be applied. And there was a bit more that happened during the pandemic that actually leveraged off of what had gone on to support spaceflight than people realize. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was really gratifying to watch it be so successful and bring healthcare to people, uh, under conditions where they couldn't be seen in person. So yeah, I think we're going to keep going down that road and yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and and think about some of these things more critically in terms of, you know, where we're having space flight, how long the missions are and who are the people that are going lots of variables to work in there. So lots of opportunity.
1: Right, right. Telemedicine's not going anywhere um, as far as no. the aerospace is concerned. So, Very Well, thank so. you, Jen, um, and thank you to our listeners. Um, thanks for listening to another episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. You can check out our social media platforms for more human-centered content. Thanks, Jen. Thank you.
0: The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at Synergistics.com. Get smart. Get Suffix smart.